Welcome to I Run Radio, and thank you for joining us this week. This is a special edition of the show. We normally share the stories of runners who inspire us with their passion and their perseverance. Today, we're going to tackle a much more difficult subject. The Globe and Mail recently reported that one of the most successful running coaches in Canada, Dave Scott Thomas, had allegedly groomed a star young athlete, Megan Brown, who was still in high school at the time, and eventually had an intimate relationship with her. There's been a lot of reaction to the story and a lot of discussion about what needs to change. Later in the show, we're going to talk to Olympic medalist and running coach Lynn Kanuka and Sasha Gaulish, the elite runner and I Run contributor who has become a powerful voice in our sport, is also going to join us. But let's start with the journalist who reported the story in the Globe and Mail, Michael Doyle. Michael, thank you for being with us on I Run Radio. Thanks for having me, Mark. And, you know, normally on this show, we, we talk about runners and we talk about uh, somebody who's completed a 10K for the first time in their lives or somebody who's run their 50th marathon. We celebrate runners and what they've accomplished. Uh, this is obviously quite a different story and a special edition of the show based on the work that you did in uncovering this uh, incredibly disturbing story. Uh, just tell me a little bit about what you learned through this this process and and um, and what it was like piecing this story together, because obviously it's a story that had to be told, but it's it's a deeply troubling one. Yeah, I mean, I'll first I'll sort of for those who've not read the piece, I'll try to sum up uh, a pretty I mean, it's a 6000 word story in yeah. the Globe and Mail last week. So uh, basically, uh, Dave Scott Thomas was the most I would say the most powerful man in, in track and field in Canada. Uh, he had an incredible amount of influence. Uh, he ran the University of Guelph's program as well as his own uh, track club, Speed River, produced a lot of Olympians, people like Reed Coolset, uh, uh, Krista Duchesne, of course, trained with him in, in the last few years. So highly influential guy, um, except he carried a, a pretty a dark secret, which was that he had had a uh, alleged sexual relationship with um, one of his young athletes uh, in the early 2000s, a, a woman by the name of uh, Megan Brown, and she was 17 at the time. Um, and it was a two-year relationship, and it, it really shattered her life. Uh, and he uh, allegedly, again, because none of this has been, you know, proven in court, and he has, den he has denied uh, large elements of this and has not gone on the record with his point of view of this. Um, but uh, yeah, so she was driven out of the program and, and struggled quite a bit in the aftermath of that. So uh, it was unearthing that and then a rather toxic culture that, um, that developed in a, in a win at all costs type environment uh, in the University of Guelph and at Speed River. So in the last, uh, I'd say, 15 years or so. The last element of this story is a, an, and it has an institutional element of it, which is that we discovered in our reporting with the Globe that uh, the, that uh, the University of Guelph was made aware of the relationship in 2006, and um, I, 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 using the word "cover up" is uh, a loaded term, but basically they were aware of it and did, did not punish, did not significantly punish him or make others aware that they that he had uh, had this relationship. And all, Athletics Canada, the governing body of the sport, did much the same. So they've been aware for a number of years now as well. And obviously with the with the story, with the reporting, we pieced this all together. Um, took me a few months, and uh, Megan, of course, was brave enough to come forward and speak with me on the record and tell her story. So, what I learned from this, uh, Mark, that's a 
I learned a lot of things from this. Um, I think the first thing is, is obviously uh, the Me Too movement, uh, which is, you know, a really important sea change in, in how we how we view um, how we how we operate in culture in our in our society uh, has not until I think the last few months has not really hit running or, uh, you know, some of these sports like running individual sports. So and. Uh, unfortunately, I think our sport, although a, a, a wonderful sport that creates a lot of like incredible connections between people, also creates this opportunity for predatory behavior, for uh, uh, older, powerful coaches to have influence over very, uh, uh, a very uh, um, vulnerable young athletes. So, and how important that coaching dynamic is and how important uh it is that we have good people in place to uh to lead young people uh in the in the running community so hmm. that is a, i think that the sort of the big takeaway um yeah. that i had was that this is a conversation we need to have uh we need to have it out in the open and it needs to be a long conversation and we need to make quite a few big changes in the sport and and in the culture in general um in sport overall uh and also that that coaching is an you know, I think we've, we all know this, that coaching yeah. is a really important thing, uh, but that coaching is this great responsibility and we have to be very careful who our coaches are. That's a great point. And uh, I don't want to overlook the unique aspects of this story, nor the fact that it is is personal and individual to Megan Brown. And and we can talk more mm. about her uh, as well. But there is something familiar about this in a way, isn't there? That this is a person in a position of power uh, who is achieving great success. And because of that, perhaps, uh, I'm, I'm speculating here as to the motives of the people who didn't take further action when they should have, that uh, sometimes when you've got a person in a position of authority and they're and they're succeeding there's a reluctance to act even when allegations are brought forward isn't there and that's that's one of the dangerous uh, elements of this recipe i think yeah i i can't speak for the motivations of the university of guelph although i will say that um in 2006 when dave scott thomas when when megan brown's father brought these allegations against dave scott thomas to the university uh he was in the beginnings of going on this incredible tear of winning uh, many uh, cross-country men's and women's cross-country national championships at the university level and was winning coach of the year over and over again. Um, although I, I have confirmed with sources uh, uh, regarding Athletics Canada that there was definitely this sense that, and then this is what the term that was used by the source in the, in the piece, there was a sense that uh, Dave Scott Thomas was seen as like a guru coaching figure at the national level and obviously had started producing uh, Olympic level athletes uh, in the aftermath of this. And, and I, my, my source was indicating to me that they felt a great deal of pressure to continue to, to, to tap him as a, a national team coach. Yeah. You brought up something else there that I think is important, and, and that is uh, taking more care to make sure that the people who are in coaching relationships, especially with young people, uh, are the right people for those jobs. And and there's uh, that's another uh, contributing factor to these kinds of stories, obviously, is you're, you've got uh, uh, an adult, uh, somebody who typically is in their 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, who is working with young people. And uh, and working in close proximity, spending long periods of time alone, traveling together, those kinds of things. Uh, and there's risk in that, isn't there? 
Oh, absolutely. And I, I think this is one of the things where something that didn't end up in, in the piece is I, I spoke with, um, with people at the Coaching Association of Canada uh, about, about this element, about this potentially dangerous dynamic. Uh, and they felt very strongly of the, uh, the rule of two, which is this concept in, it goes beyond sport, but within sport, within coaching, it would, it would mean essentially that every time you've got an athlete uh, on their own, there needs to be both a male and a female coach present. Basically, everyone keeps each other in check. It's kind of the concept, right? Um, and obviously, the pushback against that is that that's really expensive and requires that you need to, um, uh, you know, attract multiple coaches and you need to be able to find uh, adequate coaching from both men and women uh, within every single club uh, that operates in Canada. And, you know, that's, we're already, I think, probably at a deficit in some cases with, with getting the particularly volunteer coaches. Um, and, but I think that's neither here nor there. I think that that's, I think that needs to be uh, uh, a, a rule that's put in place, something that needs to be enforced, I think, across the board, because I think that's the number one way that you can safeguard everyone um, is by having multiple individuals in, in, in the same space at the same time. Um, and then other little things like, uh, and I know that these are uh, elements of code of conduct of conduct already uh, with certain associations, but you know, just uh, you don't uh, call or email um, an athlete uh, individually. Uh, it's it's a it's it. You don't sort of like create this overly intimate space, um, which I right. know is tough. And I, I hear yeah. a lot of I hear coaches that say like, well, what if the athlete doesn't show up? for practice. I'm just concerned about them. I just want to call and make sure. I think in, in that case, I mean, I know it sounds kind of like overbearing, but I think that we have to be very careful uh, not to allow for uh, these sorts of crossing of lines. I wanted to talk for a moment about uh, Dave Scott Thomas and about the athletes that he worked with and the place that he had in the sport. You alluded to it earlier, but uh, it's impossible to overstate uh, how big a figure he was in running. And I know if, if you're somebody who uh, is just training for a half marathon and, and you love running, but you don't follow elite uh, competition, uh, you may not have heard his name. But uh, but as you said, he was connected to athletes like Reed Coolset and Krista Duchesne, both of whom have condemned his behavior and and have said they knew nothing of it in their in their time working with him. Uh, but uh, this was a guy who obviously was a very talented coach and, and had a huge impact on some very prominent Canadian athletes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there is a really easy analog to compare him to another coach in another, like in a team sport environment. I'd, someone said to me, Scotty Bowman, the yeah. former NHL coach, because he won a number of Stanley Cups and uh, with different teams and also uh, also was a, a great you know program builder as well uh, at a, I think a general manager level and like my going back in my brain here with my uh, my hockey knowledge <laughs> but um, I you know I think that within the realm of Canadian running I would say that uh, Dave Scott Thomas was an even more outsized figure than that because he he built a powerhouse university team that was, I would say, on par with any of the really good uh, American uh, top-notch NCAA programs, which is impressive considering in Canada there's not really a not really a deep history of high-level uh, 
uh, track and field and cross country programs uh, before he came along. Um, and uh, then also, obviously, at the national level, you know, you're, he's coached many uh, Olympians. He's built kind of Olympians from scratch. Uh, and and I think uh, in a greater capacity, Guelph has become known as a the kind of the running capital of Canada. There was actually a Globe and Mail story, I think, from 2011, where they coined, they, they, they called Guelph the running capital of Canada, and it kind of stuck, um, which, is, which is impressive when you think about it. Like, Guelph's a... You know, mid-sized southern Ontario city. That uh, its defining feature, I think, before Dave Scott Thomas was that it was a farming community with a with a, a pretty good little university that has become a pretty big uh, little university. And uh, in the last, I'd say for sure, ten years, he built it into really um, kind of the. Uh, it's sort of like the 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 Eugene, Oregon of Canada, right? Mm, like this. Yeah. This this place that lives and breathes running and it's a huge part of its identity. Um, so yeah, so that, that's the, the influence and the impact that he's had. It's been, uh, gigantic in the, the running world in Canada. Uh, yeah. So if you've not heard his name because you maybe you don't follow running as a, you know, as a spectator sport, uh, yeah, he's the equivalent of like, uh, um, uh, you know, one of your dynastic type coaches in a, in a team sport yeah. type role. Yeah. All right. We're talking with Michael Doyle, the journalist who broke the story in the Globe and Mail about University of Guelph and Speed River coach Dave Scott Thomas. We'll continue our conversation when we come back. The Scotiabank Ottawa Marathon is Canada's largest and fastest marathon. One of two World Athletics Gold Label Marathon events in Canada. The race attracts thousands of participants, including a world-class contingent of elite athletes every year. And it's a Boston qualifier. This year's race weekend kicks off May 23rd. I'll see you there. You're listening to a special edition of I Run Radio. We're following up on the shocking story about Dave Scott Thomas, the longtime coach at the University of Guelph and Speed River, who has been accused of grooming a young athlete for a sexual relationship. We're speaking with Michael Doyle, who reported the story in the Globe and Mail. I want to talk about Megan Brown, who is at the center of this story. Uh, it is it is a story, of course, about Dave Scott Thomas in a way, but it's also a story sure. very much about her. Uh, and uh, I... Uh, the tragic part of this story, of course, is not just what happened to her, but how it affected her running career as well. This was somebody who mm. quite reasonably could have been expected to compete for a spot on Canada's Olympic team, and that never happened for her. She wasn't able to achieve what she hoped to achieve in the sport because of uh, everything that happened to her. So uh, maybe tell us a little bit about Megan Brown, about what you learned from your conversations with her, uh, and about uh, uh, about her life as a result of this. I mean, first thing I'll say is that um, she is a extraordinary person. The, the fact that she had the courage to step forward and to speak with me on the record, and you know, we because as yeah, as you may have gathered in a six thousand word piece, uh, there's it's pretty thorough, and so the the actual interviews with Megan were quite thorough. We spoke on the record. I think we did four or five interviews, and they were well over an hour each. So we talked for many hours and went over a lot of the details, you know, uh, over and over again, which is really tough because you're you're opening very old wounds. But uh, she was extraordinary about it and an extraordinarily. Um, uh, 
an impressive person, very articulate, uh, and has, I think, because of the, she's gained a certain level of distance, thankfully, from it. So she's been able to, to think about this, and and as she says, she's done a lot of work on this, uh, a lot of, a lot of therapy, a lot of discussing this, a lot of unpacking it, a lot of figuring it out. Um, and uh, so, but in terms of an athlete, um, after she moved, after she she did one semester at the University of Guelph, uh, and then she uh, was forced out allegedly again by uh, Dave Scott Thomas um, after the relationship ended. And uh, she did end up at the University of Toronto, which was a really great fit for her. She won a few national championships at the university level, which is incredible to think that like she goes to the she goes to these championship races. Dave Scott Thomas is there with his team. His team is this dominant team that's beating everyone at this point, and she on her own is able to take them on and to win. And it's uh, it's incredible to me. I mean, yeah. talking through that, that was amazing. Um, but I think she she nevertheless uh, you know dealt with a lot of uh, mental health issues over the years and uh, came very close to the 2012 Olympics in the uh, 5,000 meters and just didn't quite make it um, as I described in the piece it just kind of unravels just before she's able to piece it all together and I think it's a real shame because um, you know by all accounts she was going to be one of the next great, you know, distance runners in Canadian history. Um, and, you know, she's only 35 now. And we think about the the high level that uh, a lot of these, uh, like, marathon runners, female marathon runners in Canada are performing at right now. Uh, Melindy Elmore just set the Canadian record at 39 years old. You know, Krista Duchesne has run uh, incredibly well over the age of 40. So you do wonder, like, it's too bad that, you know, Megan's uh, – kind of body and, and also um, mental health struggles over the years, I think uh, derailed her career a little bit prematurely. Where is she now in terms of uh, how she's coping with all of this? Is she in a better place? Uh, was she, uh, were, were there, was there a conflict for her in whether to come forward with the story and talk about it publicly and have her picture in, in the Globe and Mail and, and all of that? Uh, is she... Uh, is she in a good place with all of it? I would say overall, um, I think her reaction has been, uh, it's, it's been a bit of a roller coaster in the last week. Um, it, again, it, it kind of opens this all up again and makes it quite raw. And also this awareness that the public, that people you don't know, know the details of your story, um, in, you know, intimate details of your story. Uh, and I, I think that's probably, uh, well, her and I have had quite a few conversations about this in the last week. And she, uh, it, I don't think it's made this, this has not made it any easier for her. But of course, uh, she did say, and when we first started talking uh, about this, when I first reached out to her, um, kind of out of vague curiosity as to whether or not she had anything she wanted to share. Uh, regarding Dave Scott Thomas, um, she she did respond immediately and very straightforwardly, saying that she felt that this is the environment and the time uh, to talk about this now. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of changes in society in the last couple of years. Um, I think the fact that the the Me Too movement has happened and that there's been a uh, there's a, a sense that you know, the victim is believed now and that there's a platform and there's a, there's a, 
a social conversation happening. I think she felt a certain level of comfort in coming forward. Uh, and obviously, the big trigger being that the murmurings that he that uh, Mr. Scott Thomas had um, uh, that there was another complaint, a contemporary complaint against him uh, right. by a student. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think she's. I don't think she she said she doesn't feel freed by coming forward. Um, I, but I also think that she she she's been dealing with this for a really long time and put it into a certain context. And I think she's also interested in seeing where this goes from here, where the conversation goes from here and did feel a certain level of responsibility to participate in the conversation. What kind of reaction have you had to the story since it was published? And, and what do you think? Because obviously there's there is publishing the story, getting that story out there. But then it, it sort of sets in, in motion a series of events and discussions and scrutiny and those kinds of things. So where are we now uh, just over a week after the story was published? Yeah, it's been an interesting week. It's been um, a very intense week. I... When the story dropped last Saturday, it was in the the weekend edition on the cover of the Globe, which also really kind of took me took me aback a little bit that the Globe and Mail would put so much behind, um, you know, what's this ostensibly a running story, uh, and uh, but obviously has greater reach and 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 is a, is about a lot more than just running. Um, yeah, I think I think initially I knew that the story would connect with people and that it would. Uh, have pretty far reach, but I didn't expect to the degree that it did have. Uh, I mean, I've, first of all, it, it was a, a story that was very widely uh, shared and commented on, uh, on social media and overwhelmingly positive reaction to it. I didn't, I saw very few people being critical of elements of it. Um, there was actually a great deal of respect, uh, sent Megan's way and it also opened up I think the conversation that we hoped it would which was you know this greater this greater uh dialogue about uh about the about power and about uh male female dynamic within these this power imbalance in sport and also uh the institutional element of it the responsibility of institutions in this context um a week later you know I mean there's a frenzy on social media and then that kind of dies down and now we're getting things are kind of um, the story is kind of rescinding a little bit. And now I'm interested in seeing where the conversation goes from here, because now is where, you know, now is where you put your money where your mouth is right now is where now is where we get to see the, the true, um, the true identity of an organization like athletics Canada or the university of wealth. What, what do, what do these organiz organizations do now with this? Um, do they follow through or not? Uh, you know, uh, I, I think Athletics Canada has made a lot of really um, positive uh, steps forward and have been really willing to have a, a dialogue about this. University of Guelph, a little less so. <laughs> They've, they're kind of trying to control the, the narrative. They're, they're no commenting me left and right and, um, you know, putting out one-sided statements. Um, you know, they... There have been apologies made to Megan, which I think is an important first step. But then beyond that, it's uh, they have a bigger role to, pl to play in society. And it'd be, I'll be interested to see if they, if, they, if they step it up with that role. All right. Once again, terrific job reporting the story. Uh, obviously exhaustive work, very thorough work. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, Mark.
That's Michael Doyle, who reported the story of Dave Scott Thomas in the Globe and Mail. Coming up next, reaction from elite athlete and iRun contributor, Sasha Golish. The Scotiabank Ottawa Marathon is Canada's largest and fastest marathon. One of two World Athletics Gold Label Marathon events in Canada. The race attracts thousands of participants, including a world-class contingent of elite athletes every year. And it's a Boston qualifier. This year's race weekend kicks off May 23rd. I'll see you there. This is a special edition of Iron Radio. After reading about Megan Doyle in the Globe and Mail, Sasha Gaulish wrote at iron.ca, It's time to band together to say enough. Sasha is an elite runner and Iron contributor who has become a powerful voice in our sport. Sasha, thank you very much for joining us on Iron Radio. Thanks for having me again. And just describe for me what you went through when you learned of this story, when you read it, uh, when you heard about it, uh, what, what did you experience? Um, I mean, my first reaction as I got to the end of the article was I was, I was just in tears. I was a mess. And I think, I think a lot of that was because it was very personal. Um, having been Megan's teammate at the time and understanding there were a lot of tears of anger and a lot of tears of love. And the tears of love came first because knowing firsthand all of those people that were there to protect Megan so that she could try and run again really um, was a really beautiful part of it. And the part that I'm really trying to focus on in, in my life as I process this, but you know, also a lot of anger, you know, as a current athlete, um, fine, I'm not as fast right now, but you know, I just, you know, I competed at the IAAF world championships in the fall. I consider myself a current team Canada athlete. You know, I was really sad and disappointed in, um, in the administration unit and, you know, and fine staff have moved on and it's not pointing fingers at current staff, but that they allowed something like this to happen and to happen for so long, you know, and, and we're focusing on Megan Brown and what happened, but you know, there's an unidentified athlete in that article. And I, I believe that's current. Um, and, and fairly recent and why Dave Scott Thomas in the end um, was released. And, and that's the anger um, that I'm still really trying to process. Should we be surprised that this kind of thing has happened? We, uh, I, I'm, I'm shocked, obviously, by the details of the story. It's disturbing. It, and I had uh, similar reactions to you, uh, sadness, anger, those kinds of things. But at the same time, there was something about it that felt familiar and almost uh, predictable. I hate to say it that way, but you've got uh, this dynamic where there are powerful men in sport and young women, and uh, it, I almost feel like the the environment, uh, there's there's some responsibility here for more than just the people directly involved. Well, I think there's two parts to this. I mean, I think a lot of the Me Too movement that we're seeing is bringing up a lot of stuff that happened in the past and things are getting better. And I think, you know, the counterpart to this was this actually was continuing to go on and there's a present story to this as well. And so, you know, you know, I, one of the things I did write about in my I run article and I, and I don't want it to get lost is, is I want to sort of focus away from the, the male versus female. You know, it's a power structure issue right? where you've got a person in a position of power and you've got somebody, the athlete, who's who's the vulnerable user in a sense. And and I don't want to deny that this does happen to to men as well. And I think, you know, one of the things that we need to also focus on moving away from it is this idea of young, because then we position it in terms of like this idea of, 
a 16 or an 18 year old. And I think, you know, no matter how old you are as the athlete, there's this vulnerable position because at any time the coach can do whatever they want to you to make you feel unwelcomed, like you're not a good enough athlete. Like we have to recognize this power structure. And I think moving away from these, these words of, of young and older, and, and I get where you're coming from. And, you know, I mean, many of the stories are unfortunately framed that way, but, um, you know, it's this, it's this power structure that almost in a sense, you know, like I remember going into engineering um, construction when I got my first job and I remember thinking like, this is the norm and it's shifting this idea that, that it's not the norm and that the best leaders and the best coaches, they're the ones that empower us. And yes, they create, we have to create boundaries. And I think, you know, there was a violation of boundaries here as well, but we have to create boundaries of I'm an empowering, compassionate coach that establishes connection um versus i am a you know what do they call uh parenting basically a benevolent dictatorship like getting away from this idea of a dictatorship um and creating a much healthier coaching environment and you know if you look to the corporate world and yes this was prevalent there as well but the corporate world really has started to embrace and the best corporations are the ones that are thriving because they have these these leaders that that use empathy and they use courage and they use vulnerability um, in their core values. I think that's a great point because uh, it, it, there's there's almost uh, an exception that is made for sport today that right. the, the different rules apply there and that you can't uh, that while no HR firm or advisor would say the best way to get performance out of your team in a workplace is is to beat them up or to treat them right. badly or to you know, to, to sort of have this kind of archaic approach to, to management. Nobody would say that in a workplace. There are still people who say that's the most effective way to coach a team or an athlete, right? Right. Um, and I think Coaches of Canada is really making an effort to clean that up, and it takes time, and we know that. And Coaches of Canada is still a very young organization in terms of the professionalization of coaching. And, you know, and I think as it gets back to running, like running is one of these very interesting sports where people are – almost in a sense, don't want to pay for the coaching yet running is still a skill and coaching still takes someone's time and being a really good coach, you know, recognized now in Canada, but you know, really before in the rest of the world, primarily Australia and England leading the way, you know, coaching was, was a sought after profession. And I think that might be part of the reason that there's, there's been this sort of lack of, of professionality or respect around it that we, we just didn't have those mechanisms in place. Hmm. And it doesn't make it right or wrong or, or whatever, but it's just an observation um, that I've sort of been thinking about. Now, at the heart of this, of course, we've been talking about some of the ramifications and some of the bigger picture stuff, but this is a human story about uh, a person that you knew. Uh, uh, just tell me uh, how how you feel about and and w- what other reactions you were having hearing Megan's story particularly. Well, the other one I had was, you know, like Dave Scott Thomas has been a coach as part of Team Canada for a really long time. I mean, they refer to him as the darling coach uh, in the article. And, you know, I had like sort of two reactions. So um, I considered Dave a friend. I respected him as a coach. I used to ask him for book advice all the time. And and I felt really duped. And, you know, I'm trying to separate, you know, the person from the actions. But it's really challenging in this case, you know. The, the actions of that individual of, of, from Dave, you know, they're, they're re- there's almost a monster sense to them. And, it, and it's made me 
kind of really disgusted with the whole situation. And on, you know, with Megan, um, I actually, you know, as horrible as what happens happened to Megan was, um, I think Megan might be one of the bravest and strongest and most courageous people that I know. And I'm really looking to that part of Megan's story um, to move forward. You know, Megan never burdened us as athletes with what was going on. You know, the, when she came to the University of Toronto, the coaches always asked us to protect her in a sense during warm-up. And I was definitely not as fast back then. And, you know, I would often joke going on these warm-ups with Megan, like, okay, I just, I just raced. Like, that was the fastest warm-up I think I've ever done. And I've effectively just raced. Like, I've, I've ruined my race. And the coaches were like, yeah, don't worry about it. And, and I recognized now just how important that was, that especially, you know, it was in cross-country. Like, cross-country is about the team and helping the team perform. And so I'm really trying to take those messages away. And, you know, my last memory of Megan um, in Toronto, I was doing hill repeats at Poplar and Megan was driving up the hill. I don't know if she's trying to get home or wherever. It doesn't matter. Megan rolls down her window and in her very cheery way, she's like, I'm eating chips and you're running. And I was like, let's switch because I'd rather be eating chips instead of running. <laughs> but it's it's that sense of positivity um, in Megan that I think we need to remember. And Megan had this absolutely horribly disgusting thing happen to her. But Megan was the coach that Dave Scott Thomas never was. Megan was this bursting ball of positive energy. And Megan is is a source of strength for many of us if we can see it in that light. And so that's how I see this story now. Is there any hope at all, Sasha, that that uh, people can learn from this and that uh, the right measures can be put in place to, pre- to prevent this from happening in the future, to change those power dynamics as you describe them? I don't think we have a choice but to change. And, you know, I've been thinking about how do you do that? And, you know, does it come from the center, the Canadian Center of Ethics and Sport, which currently manages doping? Like, can we create a third body, a third party over there that helps with this? I mean, I think one of the, you know, one of the other things I've been thinking about is if, if Sport Canada has had a commission in place since 2015, um, if you were an athlete and you knew it was in place from 2015 and it's now 2020, I'm sure complaints have been put in there and nothing's been done about that. And I don't think the athletes are comfortable going there. And enough people have pointed out that it has to be at arm's length from, from this, uh, from sport. And so maybe it's the Canadian center of ethics and sport, but I think we need to create a place much like the doping reporting line where people can report where they think there might be abuse. And, um, you know, I, I think we need to do something to change. You know, we, we, before this call, talked about it. We, we talked about it in a sense of reactive versus proactive. And many of us are, you know, very reactive to Megan's story. But that's not enough. You know, we've got to be proactive. And we've got to create resources for both athletes, parents, friends, and coaches to go to, essentially as a conduit to get them to the resources that exist. Great points, as always, Sasha. I really appreciate hearing your perspective in reaction to this story. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's Sasha Gaulish. Coming up next, we'll talk to Olympic medalist and coach Lynn Kanuka. The Scotiabank Ottawa Marathon is Canada's largest and fastest marathon, one of two World Athletics Gold Label Marathon events in Canada. The race attracts thousands of participants, including a world-class contingent of elite athletes every year. And it's a Boston qualifier. This year's race weekend kicks off May 23rd. I'll see you there.
Our special edition of I Run Radio continues. Lynn Kanuka won a bronze medal for Canada at the 1984 Summer Olympics and a gold at the Commonwealth Games in 1986. She continues to be a force in the sport of running as a coach. Lynn, thank you for joining us. Ah, pleasure. A pleasure. And I have to tell you, it is a pleasure for me as well, having watched you win a medal for Canada in 1984 uh, during the LA Olympics, uh, a moment that I still remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really nice to chat with you and, and have a chance to connect. Okay, Mark, I said to you, you're dating yourself if you're talking about that. <laughs> yes, yeah, I was, uh, it was a vivid memories for me. I was 16 years old and enjoying really the first Olympic Games that I kind of watched wall to wall. And, and um, there's some very special moments uh, for Canada, including your, your medal in those Olympics. So, um, so let's, let's you. turn to the matter at hand. And of course, you're a coach now, you still run a little bit. Uh, and and you know what it's like to be an elite athlete and to be coached and to be on the national team and all of that. Um, w- what do you think are some of the lessons that arise out of this story that has been reported? And, and where do we go from here with regard to, to coaching and to the sport of running a, at the elite level? Oh, you know, of course, it's a it's a really, it's a big question because you know situations like these cause us all to be really I think reflective and looking to our our own experiences and what we share and the differences we've made with athletes you know along the way and we're talking about perhaps at the elite level but you know it all starts much much before that uh you know in life I think that we as as coaches as parents as teachers if you will it's it's just so important in those formative years that that people young people are sort of given the opportunity to develop into the best possible human beings and in that regard along the way if if athleticism happens to be one of their talents then they will flourish in a way that's right for them if they're given that kind of balance and opportunity as people so it's very important, uh, you know, in those younger years, and that doesn't change, you know, through the years as an athlete grows, develops, finds themselves, you know, in that upper echelon, one of the very, very, very few, you know, overall that actually reach those those levels. And at that point still, I think it becomes perhaps even more important that an athlete is reached, uh, you know, in a human way and given that opportunity to really be who they are. And in that way they will then have their best possible performances. How do you strike the right balance between allowing a coach to have a bond with an athlete so that it's a productive working relationship while still maintaining boundaries? You know, uh, it's knowing, it's knowing your athlete it is there are there are obvious uh, boundaries in my mind. We are a coach, we are an athlete. And the comfort level that exists is something that you know develops over time, is you know appropriate at different times. Uh, it's you know it's it is striking that that balance of through you know communication uh, and you know what makes what makes sense what is reasonable what is where there is a you know a comfort level uh you know that stretches 
you know, on and off the track. We're talking about track and field on and off the, on and off the playing field. So, um, I don't, I don't really see, you know, a difficulty when you're, you're, you're a coach, there's an athlete, you know, I, I don't understand that boundaries, certain boundaries are crossed and have been crossed. I, I, I'm a parent, you know, I work with children, I work with young adults, you know, we work with people with one another in workplaces, like, there are just certain places you don't go. And it's about, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that it comes from, it comes from within it's, you know, you're taught that somehow. And, yeah. you know, no, I think that's a that's, great point. It's as simple as that. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. and, and on a certain level, I think we, we have to acknowledge that, that this is the behavior of an individual uh, that is being talked about and, and that there is a responsibility there. But, but of course it goes beyond that and you want to have the right protocols in place, the right systems in, pr- in place, the right guidelines in place to try to prevent this sort of thing from happening again or, or prevent the conditions that could lead to it, even though there are thousands and thousands of coaches in all different sports in Canada who would never cross that line, right? Well, most don't cross that line, and it's about, it's just a moral uh, behavior that is unacceptable. So, you know, and this, this happens in, in all walks of life, so it's not, it's not unique to our sport or to sport. It's, you know, it is everywhere, and I, I think almost, I do think that thankfully we're in a time where we are creating ways for people people to you know if if people are uncomfortable in a given situation they should be able to express themselves and have a safe environment place to go to express such a discomfort and then it can be effectively dealt with so we need to teach our our children and our athletes as we're talking about sport that you know what is comfortable for one, it could be the simplest thing that has nothing to do with the moral behavior that line that was crossed in this situation. It could be, it could be just simply, you know, could you please speak to me in a quieter voice? I I'm just uncomfortable. And that person, that coach, that whoever that is may not have realized they were speaking in a way that made that person uncomfortable, but they need to feel able to express themselves and feel safe doing that. So that's, something that we truly have to work on. Absolutely. Lynn, it's so great to have your perspective on this. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. That's Lynn Kanuka, Olympic medalist and coach, and that is it for our special edition. If you have comments about what we've discussed, please feel free to reach out to us on social media. We welcome your thoughts, and we will be back next week with another edition of I Run Radio. Thank you for listening.